Thank you, Emily and Matt. Well, we're so glad that you're here Christmas Eve afternoon. And as uh, Sam said, if you're new, if you're visiting, if you're looking for a church home, we're glad that you're here tonight. And we hope you'll come back on a Sunday or a, make a resolution to start the new year with us. Uh, you might have noticed some people walking around with lanyards. There's, there's hundreds of volunteers helping out. People giving voluntarily of their time here, not only on the stage, but out there. So real quickly, I'm just going to recognize our section hosts. There's something new we're doing tonight, just to give you someone to identify with. If you're a section host, just quickly stand where you are, because there's something happening at the end of the service where you need to know who these people are. So just kind of know where, if you're sitting near a section host. At the end of the service, we're going to ask you if you have questions, if you need someone to pray with. If you want to turn in your prayer cards, you can do that to those individuals that are seated, seated near you. Thank you so much. You can be seated. Well, uh, as you came in today, you received a little card that gives information about the church. We didn't want to overload you with information, so if you're interested in finding out more, it gives you a link to our website, so you can follow that along and learn about what the church has to offer for kids up to adults. We have a lot of programs to help those that are struggling, and you'll hear about some of that in the message tonight. You also received a little card, a prayer card. If you didn't receive one, you can use one of the cards at the, on the back of the chair in front of you. We want to let you know that we're here to, to serve you. And if you have a prayer need, you can fill out information even during the service. And a little bit later, there'll be an opportunity to turn that in. You don't have to give us any information if you don't want. But we do want to let you know we're here um, to minister to you. We've been in a series, a special series this Christmas, looking at family relationships. During Christmas, there's a lot of um, pain in many families' homes I conducted a funeral here just a couple days ago, and for the first time in that family's life, they're going to have Christmas without Grandpa. First time ever. He went home to be with the Lord this week. There have been many in our church who've done that this year. And so there's a place that's empty at the table this year. There's gifts that won't be given or received uh, at the Christmas tree um, tomorrow. And so we recognize the fact that for some, there's some pain. There's, there's spouses separated from um, their loved one who's overseas being deployed. We recognize that um, there's some heartache during the season. Some of you ache because of someone who's not here, but there's a lot of us who ache because of someone who is here. You know what I'm talking about. You get together at Christmas, and it's that forced time where you've got to see the relatives, that, that aunt or uncle or that parent or stepdaughter, or whatever it is, that person in your life that you just have a little bit of trouble getting along with. And so we've been looking at the subject of Christmas being forgiving. Now, I'm not talking about giving gifts. Talking about Christmas is about forgiveness, and we talked a couple weeks ago as a church how um, Christmas is forgiving those who've hurt us. Last week we looked at forgiving those we've hurt. And today we're going to look at forgiveness when I fail God. How do, how do I deal with that? How does God deal with that when I failed Him? See, we all need help with this issue called sin in our life. And the greatest gift given was at that first Christmas when Jesus was born. But he wasn't just born as a cute little baby. He was born as a man who would grow and who would die on a cross for our sins. And so in the book of Matthew, first chapter, we read this of the Christmas story. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and she gave him the name Jesus. He'll be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. See, sin is really the key issue. We all have sin. Sin separates husbands and wives, parents and children. Sin severs friendships. Sin puts us in positions of addictive behaviors and imprisoned to internal turmoil in our lives. Sin ruins everything about us. It's a spiritual cancer that invades our soul, and Jesus came to save us from our sin. But what exactly is sin? What does it do to us? Well, rather than just use big Bible words to explain it, I want to just tell a story that actually Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke. And in this story, he's talking about a certain son. He says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as a, to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. So he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. There was a son. Eager to check out life, he had grown up in a pretty sheltered environment, as many of us have. Our parents try to protect us from harm. And, and all through his life, he heard stories of what was out there, kind of like hearing about Vegas, the, the glitz and the glitter and the, the pleasures, and all that awaited him. And yet he was, he was shielded from that through his life. But he got to that age where hormones are raging and energy is high and said, Dad, I want my inheritance now. I want to go explore life. And so he began to set out. There are a lot of things that we see in life that sure sound good, look very tantalizing. Christmas, I always get a, a lot of cookies and candies from people. And you know what? I love pastries, and I love baked things, and I love candy. But honestly, I, there's only so much that I can eat. And it's really not that good for me. And so we're torn in life oftentimes between things that look tantalizing and things that we really need. And that space in between is the temptation that draws us to want to taste, to want to experience those things that we've been kept from our whole lives. And so we ask for this inheritance to go explore. Now, typically, you waited until the father died before he gave his inheritance. But here was a son basically telling his dad, Dad, you're taking too long. So let's hurry this thing up. Why don't we just cut to the chase? You give me my inheritance, I'll get out of your life. In other words, he's saying to his father, you are dead to me. 
I don't want a relationship with you anymore. It reminds me of that Kevin O'Leary on Shark Tank. I love to watch the show Shark Tank. And every so often, Mr. Wonderful will look at someone and say, you're dead to me. Meaning, I, I, I want no further contact with you. I have no desire for a relationship with you. And that's what this son is saying to his father. Give me the money and I'll get out of your hair and you can be out of my life. He wants to go to explore the world that's out there. So in spite of the fact that father knows best, he heads out. And I think he does what all of us do, even from the time we're little kids. We, we want to do things our way. We had the privilege of being with our four grandkids for the very first time Sunday and Monday this past week. And you know what? They could be angels at certain times. And then other times, something possesses them. And so we would hear the screaming down in the basement, and the little one would be losing his temper. He'd be yelling at the bigger ones, and these words would come out of his mouth, I want something, or I don't want something. And that's basically the struggle you and I have. We go through life, and we get fed up with things, and this is what I want. We grow up in homes where mom and dad have tried to tell us what we should believe, what we should do. And we grow tired at a certain point of, Mom and Dad, I don't want to vote for the candidate you vote for. I don't want to keep my room looking like you want it. I don't want to eat the things you want me to eat. I don't want to watch the shows that you watch. I don't even want to cheer for the team that you're cheering for. I want to do it my way. See, when I grew up, when I was a kid, a lot of my friends just adopted the faith of their parents. I mean, if you were Catholic, your family was Catholic, you just became Catholic because that was sort of like in your genes. Same thing for, for the Lutherans, the Protestant ones. If, they, if you grew up in a strong Lutheran family, then you ought to be Lutheran. Now, I went to the Methodist church growing up, and they really didn't care what you did beyond that. You could kind of mix and match, and that was okay. But many of us grew up where a certain faith was, was passed down from generation to generation. It was just expected. But you know what's happening today? There's a whole generation of young people who are rejecting that. So that may have been good for you. It's not good for me. And they're known as the nuns, meaning on a, on a survey, if they were to pick which faith they most closely affiliate with, you know, Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, whatever it is, and the last box says none, that's the one they would check. And so they're called the, the nun generation. A lot of them are prodigals, people who grew up going to church, but they've wandered off. And it's not that they're hateful toward God. It's not that they're not spiritually hungry. It's just that church has let them down. Church hasn't helped minister to their needs or show them the value of their faith. So they become dissatisfied. Now, you might wonder, is God happy when people wander away? I mean, if this story is about God being that kind of a father, is he willing to throw up his hands and let us walk away? And I would say, absolutely. God is willing to lose you temporarily to gain you eternally. And for many of us, it's the experience of going away and making mistakes, falling on our face, finding how, how empty our lives are without him that draws us back. See, in many countries in the world, you don't dare turn away from the faith of your parents. And so people grow up with, with not a very personal faith, but it's just a, an institutional faith. It's just a cultural faith, but it's not very personal. But when you find someone like Bailey, who grows up knowing and then walks away, goes to the other, the dark side, tries life, finds it not fulfilling, and they come home, they stay. Because they know what they're missing when they'll walk away. When my little sister Joan was about oh, seven or eight years old, she was very frustrated with our family. So she told my mom that she was going to run away. 
So my mom quickly went and got a little suitcase and gave it to her. And my sister was kind of shocked, like, you guys want to get rid of me? And she said, we said you wanted to leave, so here's a suitcase you can start packing. So she went to her room, picked out a few articles of clothing, put it in the suitcase, snapped it shut, walked downstairs, and we're all ready to bust out laughing, and we're looking at her. She, she takes a suitcase, and she looks around, and we says, bye, Joan, bye, make sure you come, come back to see us again. And so she quietly walks out the front door, down steps to the, to the sidewalk, and then she pauses because she can go to the right or to the left. So she decides to go to the right. She walks all the way down to the corner where she can cross the street, but she stops there. She waits for about a minute, then she turns around and starts walking back. But she walks right past the house and goes all the way down to the other corner. And then she turns around and comes back, comes marching up the stairs. We're all waiting for her because we've been watching this whole thing unfold through the window. And, uh, and she says, I'm going to wait till tomorrow. But you know what? She never did get that suitcase out ever, ever again. Because the prospect of leaving home started to dawn on her. Why in the world would she want to leave home? Even though it's hard here, home is where I'm loved. And so after this boy departs, he goes to a strange foreign land. He lives it up. We find out later in the story that he, that he, he spends time with prostitutes. He's got money that he's blowing left and right. He finally comes to a time of need. There's a famine in the land. And nobody's helping him out. Nobody will give him even the, the food the pigs are eating. So he decides to come back home because he knows what home life is like. And I want to pause right there and let you know this. That at that point in the story, the father has no more love for him then than he did when his son was in the pig pen, when his son was laying with the prostitute, when his son was asking for his inheritance. Because here's one of the greatest truths you'll ever learn in Scripture. That God will never love you any less or any more than he already does. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you less, and there's nothing you will do that will impress him to make him love you more. God's love is infinite. God's love is unconditional. God's love is prevailing in your life. And somehow this boy knew a little bit of this, and so he decided to come back to that father. Now, you need to understand the cultural background of this because this boy is in the Middle East. These fathers are Middle Eastern fathers. It still is true today that if you dishonor the father, you dishonor the family name, it doesn't look good for you. And so this boy goes back home, and he doesn't want to be a son anymore. He just figures, I'll just be a hired servant. Yet the Scripture says, now get this, this is a picture of God. God is our Heavenly Father. It says, while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him. I want to ask you, what does that tell you about God? That no matter how far you wander off, he will never take his eyes off you. No matter how much you turn away from God, he will never turn his back against you. His face is always toward you. No matter how steep the rebellion, no matter how vile the sin, no matter how much you've embraced that's opposite of what God would want for you, his face is still kind toward you. It says the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son. The eastern father never ran. He would wait with his arms crossed at the top of the stairs waiting for the son to return, but this father ran toward his son. You know this about God. He will wait patiently for you. And then he will welcome promptly when you turn back. The God, will, God will wait longest time for you, but as soon as you turn back, he's quick, and he'll come running toward you. When you take that first step toward him, he comes running toward you. And the son, I'm sure, expected to get a lecture. 
I'm sure when he got there to his father, he expected to hear, I told you, son. Or you really, you really made your mother upset. It's going to take a while for us to get over this. Yes, indeed, you will go and work as one of our slaves. All kinds of things he could have heard from the father. And as soon as he started to apologize, do you know what the father did? He cut him off, gave him the biggest hug he'd ever received, kissed him. And then he called for his servants to bring a robe put on him and ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. It wasn't a time for a lecture. It was a time for love. Not a time for judgment, but a time for joy. All those elements that he received symbolized something profound. The robe, the fact that his shame was covered. The ring symbolizing that you are an integral part of this family. The shoes or the sandals for his feet. You have a whole new path ahead of you. Your future's bright, son. And so the father called the neighbors together. They killed the fatted calf, and they began to party all night long. Now, here's a part of the story that's the most amazing. And I think this is the part of the story that Jesus wanted to convey to people who have this image in their mind that somehow God is a distant God, somehow God's sitting on a cloud somewhere, somehow God has a gavel in his hand ready to judge us. And Jesus says, I want you to get this picture of a God that when you come back to him and you feel covered with your shame and your guilt, I'm sure the son was happy, but I, I don't think he was dancing at the moment. But I can picture the father going from neighbor to neighbor, kissing, hugging everyone, and saying things like this, my son, my son, I thought he was dead, and he's come back to life. It's like having him all over again. I'm so excited. The father was so filled with joy, he could not stop smiling. And get this, when you turn back to God, it's a joyful experience. But Jesus is saying there's someone that has even more joy than you. There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels because our Father is rejoicing when his children come home. My wife told me today, she showed me a post that right now there's, um, I guess, about a million Syrian refugees in Germany. And many of them are showing up at churches. And she said, according to this article, there's a revival taking place. There have been hundreds of Syrian Muslims who've been baptized into Christ and when they've talked to these people and say, why have you made this huge change in your life? This is pretty significant. Why have you done this? They said time and time again, what they're hearing is this. We're tired of the religion of violence and we're looking for peace and reconciliation and we're finding it in Jesus. He is called the Prince of Peace. And there's something magnetic about his love. That's why it's called grace. Grace means we don't get what we deserve. But here's what grace also means. God gets what he desires. He gets his kids back forever. You know, many of us have stories like that, and I've been talking recently with a young lady named Antonia. I'm going to ask Antonia to come up here and join me up on stage because God has done a pretty amazing thing in her life. She's a single mom. She's part of our MOPS ministry. She's also a significant part of our Celebrate Recovery program. So would you welcome uh, this afternoon Antonia Stewart. Well, good afternoon, Antonia. Now, you grew up being taken to church and actually enjoying it as a child. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I certainly did enjoy church. My mom took us to church every Sunday. In my teen years, I was really involved in the youth ministry. I volunteered in the children's church. I was part of the worship team. We were there at the church all the time. 
I'm the oldest of five, and um, with the exception of my father, my father was uh, is still a drug addict and struggled with alcoholism for a majority of my lifetime. And uh, as a result, I had to take care of my younger siblings um, and really step up and be that other parent in his place. And um, even though I was going to church, I was starting to really experience a lot of anguish um, inside and internalize a lot of anger, and I didn't know how to express it. So I began to develop a habit of cutting and uh, an eating disorder. I would binge, and then I would purge in secret to try to settle some of that hurt, Um, but a monster was growing inside of me, and I tried to keep it strong on the outside and happy and dependable for my family, even though I was hurting. So all that was going on inside of you, and then you went off to college, some of the restraints taken off, things kind of went wild then, didn't they? Yes, they certainly did. Well, I uh, graduated high school with honors, I was part of the chamber orchestra, I was in advanced placement classes, taught a dance team, I was the kid that everyone else trusted their own children with. And um, right before I went to college, I tried alcohol and marijuana for the first time, I wasn't crazy about it, and then in my second year of college, I stumbled upon the drug ecstasy. Um, I discovered when I did that, I didn't feel any more hurt or pain or sadness until the next day when I crashed and um, felt depressed. So from that point on, I went to discover with a multitude of drugs, and one day found heroin with a friend. And after only a few short months of trying heroin, I was injecting the substance anywhere from 40 to $80 a day. Um, that went on, on and off, mostly on for about six years. Um, I cheated, lied, stole things from my family members. I stole my mother's jewelry, stole my sister's credit card, and got convicted of a felony um, because of that, just to support my habit. So this went on, you said, for about six years, and the turning point came when you made a discovery. What was that discovery? Well, um, near the end of the six years, I discovered that I was seven months pregnant. And um, when I discovered that I was pregnant, I was so addicted to heroin that I couldn't stop doing it. I was still in denial about what I was doing to myself and to my son. And um, therefore, he was born opiate dependent, and a case with human services was started. He and I were both put on methadone. And um, I knew that I had hit my bottom when I was in the hospital, and I saw him so small and in pain because of my selfishness and what I couldn't do. And I knew that I couldn't change my past and what I had done, but I could change what I did in the future. So from that point on, I swore um, that I would be the best mother possible, really dove into my recovery, and about six months into my own recovery, I found Celebrate Recovery here at Pikes Peak Christian Church. And um, I went in there feeling really inadequate and uh, less than anyone I ever met on the street because of the shame that I had done this awful thing to my son and myself. Um, but with every one of my insufficiencies I voiced to the people in Celebrate Recovery, they came back to me with love and showed me more love and acceptance than I had ever had for myself in my entire life. And um, in that program, I was fully able to fully surrender to God. Wow, that's awesome. I want to make a little plug for Celebrate Recovery. The little gal that was singing up here, her parents, um, Connie and Darren Fahey, just had a burden on their hearts because they both were um, saved from that, by that program. So they launched it back in March 
this past year. And every Friday night, anywhere from 30 to 40 adults now come on this campus, have dinner together at 545. They go into their program um, after that, and it's become a lifesaver for many, many people. They found a community where it's safe to deal with the junk in their lives. It, it might be a hang-up. It might be a hurt. It might be a habit. Some place in your life where you're stuck, I just want to tell you guys that if, if you're in that position of life and you need some support, people who will take you where you are and walk this journey with you. They're not going to point fingers because they're dealing with their own junk themselves. Some of the people that were clapping, I think, are people from Celebrate Recovery that are here tonight. And uh, I know Chris is right here, and it's really turned his life around. So they're not meeting tomorrow because it's Christmas, but I want to tell you, on January 1st will be the next meeting. It's, it's a party day for a lot of people, and what a great day to say, I'm going to make a new start in my life and pursue God and get out of this trap that I've got myself into. And one of the things, um, Antonia, that I think people struggle with, like, like your situation, you, you look at your son down there, how do you forgive yourself? Um, well, it was really hard to forgive myself for what I had done to my son. Um, but we have this awesome saying in Celebrate Recovery, and it goes that God never wastes a hurt. And I've learned that even though I went through the awful experience of being a heroin addict, that God can use that for my future. And um, one of the ways that God is using that is that um, I enrolled in uh, certified addiction counseling classes. I finished my last class last month. I'm in an internship right now, and I work at a treatment center. I'm earning my hours, and I should be able to apply for my first certification in May. Um, in addition to that, God has really put it in my heart to work with the adolescents, and um, we're forming this specialized recovery program for adolescents in Celebrate Recovery, and uh, it's called The Landing. The Landing should start sometime in February. We're hoping the first Friday in February, and I think that's February 7th. I'll be teaching the female part of that, and um, we're hoping to teach teens to cope with life's hurts, habits, and hang-ups in a healthy way rather than internalize them and let them snowball into the way that mine did. And um, I'd be just so blessed to help any of those teens in there. And some of you might be here today, then you're in that age group, middle school, high school, and you're dealing with stuff kind of like Antonia was, where this monster is growing inside and you don't know how to handle it. So she's now giving back. And if you even want to hunt her down in the lobby tonight after service or up front for prayer, um, be sure to do that. Well, Antonia, the last thing I want to ask you is, how do you see God now um, when you look at him? What does he mean to you? Well, um, the old me used to consider myself a useless junkie, that I would never amount to anything, that I was perfectly content with being a drug addict for the rest of my life. But God has replaced those lies with his truth, and I know that I am his precious daughter now, and I'm able to worship him and lift my hands and head in thanksgiving for all that he has done for me, because he's done so much. Thank you so much. Well, let's thank Antonia and the God who has saved her. Thank you so much. Some of you can identify with parts of that story. Now, you might have not had a, a, a baby um, in the situation she did, or it might not be drugs, but, but you recognize the fact that you've walked from God. You've drifted. And, and the faith that maybe you were taught when you were younger, um, you kind of let go. You put it on a shelf. And you're at a place now where maybe, maybe I want to try coming back. I just want you to know this. This is our whole point tonight. And when you think about Jesus at Christmas... I want you to think of the Father that loved you so much that he sent Jesus and how he invites you to come home. When I was in college, 
I went four years of Bible college and a couple years of seminary, and I would always drive home at Christmas time, and it was a long drive, usually, usually eight to ten hours, and I'd, I'd always think when I got to that last leg of the journey, the anticipation in my heart, I can't wait to get home, and it was the home that I grew up in since third grade, and sometimes I'd get home really late at night, sometimes after midnight, but it never failed that when I got home and came walking up the, the sidewalk to the back porch, I'd open it up, and there'd be a light on inside, and it's communicated to me. Son, we've been waiting for you. You're welcome here. And I want you to know this. No matter how far you've drifted from God, no matter where you've gone or what you've done in your life, in God's house, there's a light on for you. And it'll stay on until the day you come home. 